Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, the most powerful committee at the State House is the committee that controls the purse strings. That's the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. Made up of 20 lawmakers, 10 from the House, 10 from the Senate. Their job that begins really the first couple of days of the session and kind of runs through the entire session is writing budget bills for more than 100 state agencies. And of course, that includes writing budgets for public schools and for higher education. We haven't seen those budgets yet, but we're starting to see a few budget bills coming out of the committee, including some supplemental budgets to uh, address education needs for this current fiscal year, which runs through June 30th. So to get a sense of how things are going so far and what to look for in the weeks to come, I had a chance to sit down with the co-chairs of JFAC this week. Senator C. Scott Groh is a Republican from Eagle. He is the Senate co-chair who kind of takes a lead on a lot of the health and welfare-related budgets. Representative Wendy Horman, a Republican from Idaho Falls, you've heard her on the podcast before. She is the House co-chair of JFAC, and for several years she's taken a lead role in writing the education budgets. Here's our interview. Well, Senator and Representative, thank you for taking the time this week. It's a busy budget season, I know. But I wanted to catch up with you kind of as you head into the budget writing aspect of the session. But I wanted to start with just kind of an overview about JFAC this year. I mean, it's such a technical committee. There's such a premium placed on institutional memory, and you've got a lot of newcomers. How is all that working out? Maybe I'll lead since I'm a newcomer at the chair and... uh Representative Horman has twice the experience that I have, so I really appreciate having her as a co-chair. So it's been interesting as we uh, have about half the people are new, and so uh, we've tried to be very open and explanatory as we've gone through things that might be new to them, so that we're trying to get them acclimated. We're taking all the questions that they want to have, so I think it's working out great. One of the things I've been thrilled to see is those who do have a little experience working with those who don't. We had an example of that in JFAC uh, on Tuesday where uh, an experienced member was scheduled to make the motion on a supplemental and he went to a brand new member and said, why don't you take this one? It's pretty straightforward, very self-explanatory. Why don't you take it? And so we're seeing really, there has been some uncertainty around voting. There has not been uncertainty around the work. work. And uh, we've been really pleased to see that. We have. And just FYI, uh, Representative Horman and I have been together on this thing and very cooperative. There's been no division or uncertainty between us. We've just gone full speed ahead, even though there have been questions at the leadership level between the House and Senate on voting. We've been united, and it's been great, and still is great. Let's talk about that voting and that voting process that you're using, because in a way it's not really different in the sense that you are voting as a 20-member joint committee but you're announcing the House votes and the Senate votes differently. Why, why are you doing that? I mean, well, why did you get to this point, and how does that play out when you get to the bigger budgets of the session? I, I think you've seen uh, some of the challenges we've had with budgets on the House floor specifically the last several years, and, um, and, and some of those challenges led to discussions over the summer about splitting up the committee. Uh, I just pragmatically speaking we'd have to double our staff or we'd be here till june if we were going to do that but there there were ways we thought we could modify how we vote to make sure that when a budget comes to either the senate floor or the house floor um, that it has a majority of that committee's support and so that's what led to the conversations at the leadership level 
Uh, we were brought in only on a couple of meetings, <laughs> and uh, this was the idea that came forward, and so far it's working very well. We do announce the Senate total, the House total, and then the joint total, and if, should we come to a budget where not a majority of that committee votes in the affirmative, uh, it will go to that body first mm -hmm. for their decision about what to do about that. And we've been from the Senate side very, very understanding of the issue. How, how do you have your leadership or the co-chair over in the House try to convince the House people to vote for something that even their own committee people on JFAC didn't have a majority? So I understand totally, and, and it works both ways. And last year we had some where the Senate didn't really have a majority or the House, and so it's going to be great working that way. One thing that uh, we're also going to do is rather than send something to the floor, either house that we think might die, by definition, we'll have to go there at first, but we're going to work with a new bill and bring it up again. We're going to solve the problem here in JFAC, so it's not going to be an issue. We'll just work it out here. That would have been the advantage of having either a House or a, a Senate vote that didn't have a majority kill the motion. We would have just been able to retain it here and, and keep the work. Now we'll have to deal with the bill, uh, but we can still always call that back to committee or, or do other things with it. Nowhere else in the Capitol does a bill advance if it doesn't have the majority support of that chamber's committee. And you are now starting to move into supplemental budget writing. You've gone from the presentation phase to the, the budget phase. You've run a couple of supplementals, education related, especially dyslexia, the U of I security budget. You've got a couple of other supplementals on the education front coming in, in terms of school security, uh, technology. Do you anticipate any hiccups with any of those? I think the group has some different ideas perhaps around both of those supplementals around school safety and security and technology. I, I, uh, I don't want to speak for the working group, uh, but there has been some discussion and we heard from Chairman Yamamoto that those issues are really ongoing day-to-day -day issues and they would prefer to see them not as one-off, one one-time supplementals, but well, as, she was very clear when she came to you last week that you have to put money into security long term. You have to put money into technology long term. Absolutely clear. And I thought that was a great way of presenting that information. And she's right. And we agree. And so I think we're looking at ways to maybe build those in as ongoing funding rather than as supplementals. But we'll see. The group is still working. It's very fluid. And uh, like Senator Gross said, working very well together. Were you surprised at all with what happened in committee last week on the dyslexia budget? I mean, it did pass, but you had a couple of new legislators, first term legislators questioning, how did we get to this point on funding dyslexia training? It wasn't in the fiscal note. Yeah, why are we, why are we funding it at this level? This is the benefit of new eyes on old problems. They brought up a very valid point. The fiscal note on that bill that passed last year did it not. It, no. it called for the work to be done, but it didn't call for that level of spending. So in the meantime, and that, that issue kind of got caught up a little bit in politics last session. And I think what ended up passing was sort of a compromise. And, and so we wanted to not have an unfunded mandate in that, and that's why I believe the committee acted to go ahead and push those funds out so that school districts can get to work with getting that professional development that will be required to deliver these dyslexia services at the local school district and charter and level. Kind of goes to the point that Representative Bundy was making in the committee last week. The work's already going on, but schools are training 
staff to work with kids with dyslexia. We're just paying the bill that's already been incurred. Mm -hmm. That was a great point that he made, and as a school teacher, he knows firsthand. So what's going on behind the scenes in terms of trying to put together the K-12 and higher ed budgets for next year? Right now, the work groups are meeting on the lunch hours, Tuesday and Thursday, because of the opposite meeting schedules in the Senate and the House. That's really about the only time we have to meet jointly, and we try to do that. And so uh, the analysts are presenting the, the governor's recommendation, the agency request. We're comparing those. We're talking them through. It, it's been a very collaborative process. So popular, in fact, that a couple of weeks ago, the higher ed group had too many people. And I got there, and I was person number six on House Appropriation Committee. That's a quorum, and you can't do that. You can have work groups that do not constitute a quorum. And so I had to leave the room because the interest level is so high with so many people. I think that's a great thing. I know these budgets, but I do benefit from learning about the questions that uh, other people have about them. And so, uh, so far, just a lot of work in the trenches. Waiting for some, there's chatter around the Capitol about freezing tuition and fees again in higher ed. Of course, the launch bills fate is still very uncertain right. at this time, and that impacts uh, to higher ed to a certain degree. Uh, certainly, the governor's proposals for salaries for classified staff and teachers uh, has some uncertainty around it. The funding formula bill that Senator Denhartog and I are working on, we hope to introduce very soon. And of course, the school choice issue. Mm -hmm. uh, the governor has called for $30 million in the State Board of Education budget to go into empowering parents. And so I think it remains to be seen which bill advances in that space, if any. And you saw an education savings account bill, which has a $45 million price tag. You advanced a bill to Tuesday morning as a $10 million price tag on advanced opportunity. So a lot of variables right now. Yes, and I, I was uh, careful to use the language on the fiscal note of that calling for state funds, depending on what happens with the launch bill. Certainly, those would be available funds for uh, that bill. Uh, certainly, part of the $330 million would be available for that advanced opportunity bill or state general funds. And so I just listed state funds. And as things evolve, we'll see which funding uh, source is the best use. And Senator, I've got to imagine similar work going on behind the scenes of health law. Absolutely. Which is your big budget. It is my big budget. In fact, there's been a lot of angst over the last couple of years, particularly about the percentage increase in health and welfare. Last year, it increased nearly half a billion in one year, over 15%. And when it has that kind of an increase, if, if you extrapolate that out to the future, it could just eat up the whole state budget. So, there's been a lot of concern there. What can we do to tighten it up? Uh, so as a subgroup, we're looking at various options. Uh, we have 29 supplemental requests just for health and welfare alone. So as we meet in our little subgroup, the same issue, we've got five and five, five from the Senate, five from the House, and, and you have to be careful you don't have a, more than a quorum. Well, you don't have a quorum, or you're violating the law. So we're very careful of that. A lot of interest in health and welfare. So I think you'll see some, some uh, supplementals probably get, number one, some that won't get run. And number two, some that may get shot down, even if we do run them, because uh, the request may be a valid request, but there's so much concern about how much money is going out for health and welfare. What can we do to uh, reduce that amount so it doesn't just eat up the whole budget? I have a mention for both of you, 
in these respective budgets, you've got a tension between public demand, public expectations, with yeah, Medicaid expansion popularly exactly. the you know, advisory vote from you know, the special session and the 80% majority uh, on that. I mean, you've got pub public demand on these services, but also the tension of how do you pay for it all and balance budget. Yeah, let me just add some more on that tells a welfare thing, because uh, what's happening is uh, we've got the Medicaid expansion issue. Are we going to do that or not? And you know there's a bill in the House to maybe not do Medicaid expansion. If that goes away, that affects all kinds of budgets all over the place. So, so that's a question. You also have the uh, users, I guess, providers of Medicaid uh, activities, transportation, et cetera, that say we're not getting enough money. You have the doctors that say Medicaid doesn't pay enough. The dentists say it doesn't pay enough. Everybody says it doesn't pay enough, and yet at the same time, the, the dollars are just astronomical that are increasing in the health and welfare budget. So that's a balance we've got to try to work to to make sure we're getting adequate funding for the people that need the money, and at the same time, uh, keep the budget under, under control as much as we can. One of the other things we're doing to kind of address that tension, if you will, between the demands and the requests and the available funding is we've added to our agenda every week a review of the general fund budget update, sometimes referred to as the green sheet because it's printed on green paper. But as we have so many new people on the committee this year, we really want to paint the picture of how their work in the trenches with individual budgets, individual supplementals and line items impacts the overall big picture. And so the front page of this kind of demonstrates the request, the back page shows what's going on down in the policy committees that potentially is going to impact either revenue or expenditure side of the budgets. And so we're trying to help our folks get up to speed and help them see how the work they're doing on every single budget impacts the overall big picture. One other thing that we've added for this year, based on some problems we've had in the past about appropriating money for a specific use, it's been requested for a specific use, and then is used for not that purpose. And so we've added some language into every budget that does have legislative audit oversight that the funds appropriated uh, shall be used for the pur purpose they were requested, and, and they will be subject to an audit, which is standard practice. Mm -hmm. This is nothing new. But we just want to reinforce that if you come to JFAC and you ask for money for a specific reason, that by and large we expect it to be used for that reason. And I noticed that even on Friday with the supplemental on the University of Idaho security budget, and you know that money has probably already been spent by yeah. the university, at least from what uh, Scott Green has said. Right. But you want a report by August 1st of exactly where that million dollars went, assuming it gets funded. Right, and I think you'll see that more and more in these budgets of uh, a report back to JFAC so that we can make sure we're following the money and that we're being good stewards of taxpayer dollars. I'll tell you another thing, Kim, that we're doing is uh, trying to help our new people particularly understand the difference between policy and the budget process because sometimes they think, well, here in JFAC we can just decide to do whatever we want to do. But as you know, the germane committees are the ones charged with coming with a policy. Then it comes over us to determine the funding. And so we're trying to help them because I think some people thought they'd come on this uh, JFAC committee and they could cut this and cut that and get rid of this. 
But if it's in statute or even new policy that's coming, and we have to watch that because new bills are coming all the time. As we look at this green sheet, we try to reflect those changes so that we don't overcommit to one agency uh, and then find out we've got a new policy bill, bill coming up that's going to adversely affect a different agency or cause more spending in one agency that then will be adverse to another. So we're trying to look at all aspects of that, but focus on difference between policy and budget so that we're not a policy committee. We are one that will determine the budgeting that goes based on state policy. Now, a lot of your budgeting decisions in education are already set by policy. I mean, you've got Correct. a career ladder, for example, that you know, Correct. That's you're a statutorily policy. required to fund. Yep. Yeah, that's a really good example. That's set in policy. And, and while we do go in and change the amounts uh, for administrators, we just go in and update those amounts each year for administrators and classified staff. Historically, the career ladder has been done in the Germain Policy Committee because that's a, a significant policy, sh policy shift to move in that direction. What, at this point, do you consider to be the the biggest sticking points on the K-12 budget at this point? I mean, what is causing maybe the most discussion, maybe angst on the committee right now? Mm -hmm. I think the, the governor has called for significant increases in teacher salary and in classified uh, staff salary. So uh, paraprofessionals, bus drivers, janitors, that uh, even IT is, is a classified position. And that's a lot of money. And so how do we incorporate that into the existing budget? Because it would be a, a policy change. Mm -hmm. And so we're, uh, that hopefully will be part of the forthcoming funding formula bill to do that because it does reflect a very significant change. And so we're working as hard as we can to get that funding formula bill moving so that we can have that piece set before we set budgets. This is part of the reason that we moved public schools to the very end of budget setting. I was wondering kind of where we were on the timetable and why, and that helps explain it. I mean, but the classified issue, it is a big amount of money that the governor has asked for, but representing you were in the same committee room Tuesday mornings I was with a lot of school trustees who to a person would probably say, we got to have help on classifieds. That's exactly what I heard while I was sitting down there waiting to present a bill I had on advanced opportunities. I had the benefit of hearing from trustees from all over the state. So that was a very useful time spent for me sitting there. And uh, this is one way to do it. And I, Senator Den Hartog and I certainly hope that it's, it's the successful way to do it. Same question then about higher ed. What are kind of the sticking points or the you know, points of tension about the higher ed budget? You mentioned that there's you know, sentiment towards trying to freeze tuition for one more year. The university officials have said yeah, it's going to be really difficult to do at this point. How does that all work out? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really good question, and I think that <laughs> remains to be seen. How will it work uh, out? <laughs> yeah. One of the things a lot of people don't know about the higher education space is that we do have a colleges and universities budget and a community colleges budget, but they also receive funding through the career technical education budget, through the health education budget, through the Office of the State Board of Education system-wide budget. Uh, certainly they get almost all of the dual credit money that's appropriated in the K-12 budget. 
launch would have a huge impact, I would imagine, in that space. So you can't consider just the higher education funding in the context of only those two budgets. Uh, colleges and universities and community colleges. So one of the things our analyst is putting together right now is a sheet that shows all of the proposed funding from multiple budgets on higher education and I, I think we'll be taking a look at, at that this week and uh, it will add to the, to the color and the context of our discussion as we are able to see the big picture. And where is higher education's budget in your timetable in terms of budget writing? I mean, no, public schools is the very last thing you're trying to do now. Yeah, that is second to the last day. Yep. Yep. Second yep. to the last day. Uh, a lot of questions in that space, and that's been one of the more challenging budgets the last three years. And we want to allow plenty of time for that to get settled before we come into committee with it. There, there still be maybe multiple motions on it, and that's fine. That's how the process works. So you're shooting Thursday, March 9th on higher ed, Friday, March 10th on K-12 budgets in committee, and then they both have to pass. Yes. Uh, both houses. And you mentioned it at the outset, higher ed budgets have struggled on the House floor. A K-12 budget died on the House floor couple of years ago. And the Senate may be a, a more difficult process in terms of passing any of these budgets next year. Yeah, we have a whole different uh, Senate than what we've ever had, really. Uh, so if you think about it, every, every Senate position from Treasure Valley to the Canadian border here on the west side of the state, those are all new senators. If, if you just start District 1, 2, 3, 4, if you go down to pictures of the senators, everybody until about, until about me are, are new just a couple in there that have been there before. So you've got a lot of uh, folks that have uh, some activism in their hearts and minds that they want to come and do this or that and the other and feel that they have a mandate from the people. And so it's a very different group in the Senate and trying to get that cohesive will be, and is the effort that's taking place in the Senate so that we're, we work as a body and, and we don't divide into little factions there. So that's new, new for us. You've had some of that to deal with in the House for the last several years, but that's a big new one for us. And I was going to ask both of you, maybe this is kind of a wrap-up question, is for both of you, you've got a lot of new members in your respective chambers. How do you, what's your leadership role as co-chairs of this committee, taking budgets to the floor, whether, the, whether or not you're actually the ones carrying them? To what extent is it your job to listen to your colleagues, try to understand their questions, their concerns, and try to explain the process that you've been working on in the, in the Budget Committee, how you got to the numbers that you're presenting. Let me tell you the process we're going through is that uh, we want to involve our new people as much as we can so that they have the opportunity to carry a budget but we want to make sure that they're fully informed and they're confident when they go on the floor. The worst thing you can have is somebody on the floor carrying a budget and they get questions that they're not able to respond to appropriately, and then the credibility of that presenter goes down, then the budget can be in trouble. So the responsibility that we have as the, as the co-chairs is to make sure that we also understand each of these budgets so that we can assign one to a person and we'll do it based on their skill level and experience and their confidence. And then we are in a position that we can back them up as well. So that's part of what we're trying to make sure that uh, they don't get in, in over their head. So have a floor sponsor who's ready. Yeah, he's ready. He or she's ready to go and confident they can handle it. And we are as well so that we can, we can support them in that area.
and that effort. And in the House, we have a culture on budgets of asking questions. That's been a little bit different in the Senate. Where in the, the past. I think in the past. This I, think it may, I think it may be switching. Now, as, as a budgeter, I have never minded that. It's the people's money. And if I can't defend that on the House floor, then it doesn't deserve to pass. And so the culture in the House has been very much around asking questions and making sure they can that our people are prepared to answer those. But just this morning, for example, we took our, the motion sheets that came out of committee. We indicated, uh, you know, a few details on that, vote counts, those sorts of things, and we will have those with us, a binder on the floor. Uh, we want our people to know they've done good work, but our uh, we will have their backs. Our our vice chairs will be prepared to jump up if they need to to answer questions, and certainly the analysts are always available by phone. And so we really want them to feel supported in the work they've done. JFAC is a heavy load. We start at 8 and we go to 11 for six weeks, and then and we... we meet in the morning, we meet at noon. Now, now mean, we're moving into budget setting, yeah. we're meeting. We start at 7 this morning with yep. our staff, 7.30 with the, the informational meeting and so it, it is a very heavy load and we just we want them to feel supported in the work that they're doing on behalf of all of their colleagues and for the people. One of the, one of the things we're doing there is as you can see we've got the schools and colleges etc at the end we're starting with easier agencies and budgets so that people feel comfortable we kind of get the flow and then we'll move into the harder ones as we go along. To the extent that there's an easy budget to pass. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's a big assumption. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, you've got a lot of work to do heading into March 9th and March 10th on, on the education budget. So I appreciate you taking some time to talk to talk us through about how things are going so far. Thank you. Thanks. We appreciate Thanks the opportunity. Again, that was Senator C. Scott Groh. He is a Republican from Eagle and Representative Wendy Horman. She is a Republican from Idaho Falls, and they are the co-chairs of the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee at the legislature. And it goes without saying, but as JFAC uh, gets to work on education budgets, including those higher ed budgets and the K-12 budgets that will come up in early March, we will have full coverage of those hearings but we'll also have full coverage of everything else that's happening at the State House, all things related to education policy and education politics. Sadie Dippenburr and I are at the State House every day writing daily roundups of what's going on in education news. So check those out every weekday at idahoednews.org. Much more to check out at idahoednews.org this week. Really a historic school election coming up on March 14th with the help of our intrepid data analyst Randy Schrader. We crunch the numbers and we arrive at $1 billion. That's what's on the line on March 14th. When you tally up all of the bond issues and levies on the ballot, more than a billion dollars is at stake. We have a breakdown of where those elections are taking place, 47 school districts across the state. We also have the sample ballots so you can check out what's happening in your neighborhood and what's at stake. That's all at idahoednews.org. And I also take a step back on this whole issue and look at how this kind of, how this all interrelates with the issue of school elections and school election reform, which is a hot issue at the State House. That's my Thursday analysis piece, which you can check out at idahoednews.org. Other stories you might want to check out this week, Carly Flandro takes a look at how teachers are 
adapting to new ways to help students with dyslexia. Darren Savan has a piece about a new scholarship at the College of Idaho, this one with a connection to Elgin Baylor. Now, if you're an old school basketball fan, you know that name, but you might not know that Elgin Baylor's illustrious basketball career actually began in Caldwell. That's the connection to the scholarship. Darren takes a look at, at the scholarship and how it might help students. So check us out every day at idahoednews.org for the latest in education policy and education politics. Follow us on Twitter at Idaho Ed News. We tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on breaking news. Follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there. And check out the next edition of the podcast right here. And also keep an ear out for the Teacher's Lounge, Carly Flandro's podcast. You can find those both where you find your podcasts. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Take care. Take care.